You know, as I was thinking about what would be my illustration, I got a bright idea at about 3.30 in the morning. You're welcome. So I'm going to try to get to you three points that I'd like you to remember this morning. I've titled this sermon, A Formula for Deeper Purpose. A formula for deeper purpose. In other words, what does God often send us through so that we can have a greater understanding of what our purpose is in him? So, you ready for my bright idea? All right. So, we went on a pastoral retreat back in January, I believe, and as you all know or may not know, is that we have different takes on what it means to be healthy and to be well. So among the pastoral staff, I am normally the one that is like, let's eat bad, right? Like, I want pizza, I want a cheeseburger. Every time they ask me, what are we going to do for lunch, my recommendation is always terrible. Philip is right in between. He's like, Marcus, I'm going to mess with you, but I'm going to drink water, (laughs) right? So we normally have like this in-between thing, and then Jake is like, we're going to have a salad, and we're going to have a water. (laughs) And if I'm feeling froggy, Coke Zero, right? So we have this kind of thing that happens, right? So the pastoral treat was no different, no different at all. So here's the first picture. Here's our first point. This is the opposition. Now, this box may not mean a whole lot to you while you're looking at it, but that is literally Pastor Philip's hand on this massive box of pizza. Pizza, probably my idea, right? But if you just look at the size of the pizza itself, I mean, it was huge, right? Here is the opposition. Philip could not get this pizza out of the door of the restaurant. So he's literally trying to get this thing out, and he finally angles the box down and scoots out just as the door closes. And we're like, bro, that was, that was impressive, because me and Jake were sitting in the car watching him struggle, because that's what pastors do. And we finally makes it to the car, and we cannot actually get the pizza in the car. Like, we literally had to put the pizza in the trunk in order to get it back. So I say amen, praise God, right? So... Here's what happens next. Pastor Jake, I'm like, Jake, you're going to have to eat this pizza, bro. Like, I have prodded and pride to get y'all to eat unhealthy. You're going to have to at least taste this pizza. And he's like, bro, but my, my heart, you understand, like, this stuff is important. I need to make sure that life is good. So being healthy is important. So this next picture, please. So this is Pastor Jake. <laughs> now, Pastor Jake has a look of sarcasm on his face, as you can see. And the reason he's looking this way is because he wants to protect his heart, amen, because God's protection is necessary in these moments, right? But here's the next picture where we see the purpose, God's purpose revealed. Boom. Now, subtle facial expression change. This was after the first bite. Do you see the sheer joy on Pastor Jake's face after that first bite of pizza. So here's what we're going to talk about today. Hopefully you remember the points. There's opposition, there's protection, and then there's what? Purpose. Amen. So before we start, let's pray. Let's invite God into the space, just as we've done this morning, and see what he would have to say to us. Father, in the name of Jesus, God, I just thank you for the opportunity just to minister to these, your people. Father, I pray uh, that your word will be made known Uh, to those that are here, Father. I pray that this word doesn't die when they hear it, Father, but it would go henceforth now and forevermore, Father. You said in your word in Isaiah 55 that your word will go forth and it will not return void, Father. So I am calling on that this morning. 
that lives will be radically changed this morning, Father, that families will be different this morning, that communities, our state, and our world will be different because of the faithfulness of your people here this morning. So, God, I love you so much, and I thank you for the privilege it is to serve you. In Jesus' name, amen. So Acts 22, verse 30 through 23, 11 is where I'll be preaching this morning. So just as an overview of last week, last week we discussed Paul being arrested yet again after addressing a crowd in Jerusalem. We see Paul careful in his approach and gave testimony for his former zeal in Judaism. We see his encounter with the Lord and his newfound purpose in Christ. We also get a glimpse of Paul's vision in the temple. And upon sharing this vision of being sent to the Gentiles, a riot broke out and he was arrested and ordered to be beaten and flogged. Now, just before Paul was stretched out to be flogged, he asked the Roman centurion who was standing nearby, is it lawful to flog a man who is a Roman citizen? We learned last week that being a Roman citizen came with certain privileges So Paul, having been a Pharisee and who knew such practices and was privy to the benefits that his Roman citizenship afforded, he asked, is it legal or lawful to flog a Roman citizen? So they unbound him. And on the next day, Paul, just before the Jewish, Paul was called before the Jewish high court, also known as the Sanhedrin. So as we read Acts 22.30, I just want to invite you back into the narrative, back into the story of where we left off last week, to see what has taken place. Acts 22, verse 30, it says, The next day, since he wanted to find out, he being the commander, wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews, He released him and instructed the chief priests and all of the Sanhedrin to convene. Now, before we move forward, I want to get this in your mind that he is the commander and he has the power to not only take Paul and remove him from being bound, remove him from confinement, but he also had convening power of the Sanhedrin. Says he brought Paul down and placed before them says, Paul looked straight in verse 1. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience to this day. The high priest Ananias ordered those who were standing next to him to strike him on the mouth. So this would have been the high priest of the Sanhedrin, not the commander. It says, Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. You are sitting there judging me according to the law, yet in violation of the law, you are ordering me to be struck. Now, that thing spoke to me. It may not have spoken to y'all if you grew up a little different than me. But if you're going to hit me in my mouth, you're going to hear something. You understand? So that really spoke to me. And it says, those standing nearby said, do you dare revile God's high priest? Paul says, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you must not speak evil of your ruler. And when Paul realized that one part of them were Sadducees and another part of them were Pharisees, he cried out in the Sanhedrin, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. 
I am being judged because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. And when he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the assembly was divided, for the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and neither angel nor spirit. But the Pharisees affirm them all. Verse 9, then shouting grew louder. And some of the scribes of the Pharisees got up and argued vehemently, we find nothing evil in this man. What if a spirit or an angel had spoken to him? And when the dispute commander feared that Paul might be torn apart by them and ordered the troops to go down, take away Paul and bring him into the barracks. The following night, verse 11, the Lord stood by him and said, Paul, have courage, for as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, you will also testify about me in Rome. So there's a whole lot going on here. We're going to walk through each of these particular verses, but the first thing that is louder than anything else was this very present opposition. We will see that Paul is in deep conflict with the Jewish crowd, the Jewish court, and the high priest Ananias. Paul was angered the Jewish crowd. Paul angered the Jewish crowd by affirming that he was sent to minister to the Gentiles. He angered the high priest Ananias for defending that he had lived in good conscience and the Jewish high court for believing in the hope of the resurrection. So Paul is literally at odds with everybody around him. Let's look at verse 1. It says, where Paul interacts with the Sanhedrin and the high priest, Paul says to them, brothers, I have lived my life in good conscience up until this day, and at first glance, one should wonder if such a comment would warrant a punch to the mouth. But see, what had taken place is that would have been a bold declaration by Paul considering the charges and the accusations that had been brought against him not even a day ago. And Paul says his conscience is clear in the way that he was acting rightly before God, which immediately suggested his innocence in pointing guilt toward the Sanhedrin and the high priest for arresting him. He would have been arrested without just cause and stripped of his benefits of citizenship. And understanding this a little better, we can see why Ananias immediately got upset and would strike Paul in the mouth. Now, keep in mind, Paul is surrounded by enemies who were seeking to kill him. So you can imagine the tension increasing as Paul blasts the high priest, calling him a hypocrite in front of the religious council. God will smite you was not Paul's way of hoping that one day God would intervene, but a prophetic prediction that vengeance is truly the Lord's. And that God would render judgment against Ananias for his hypocrisy in his office of high priest. And as we'll find out later on in later chapters, Ananias would actually later be killed shortly after this encounter. So those standing by question Paul, saying, do you dare revile God's high priest? And Paul quickly responded, I was unaware that Ananias was even the high priest. Paul's lack of awareness in this case has been a subject for debate for quite some time. Some people would say, well, he didn't look like a high priest. Maybe he just didn't have on the garbs that high priests would normally have on. Perhaps Paul's vision was blurry and he could not see that this guy was not the high priest. In my opinion, likely the more plausible answer is that 
whatever the reason, Paul had been away from Jerusalem for about 14 years, as we see in Galatians 2 verse 1. So he had not been in the midst of what was happening in Jerusalem up until this time. Paul seemed repentant and truly unknowing of the office of Ananias. He held the office that Ananias held, and although Ananias' behavior wasn't enough to restrain Paul's rebuttal, perhaps having a deep respect for the office in and of itself, Paul may have used some type of different language. And I think there's something that we can learn there, that even though we don't respect the person in office all the time, we can at least respect the office itself. Verse 6, it says, After realizing some of the Sanhedrin were Pharisees and some were Sadducees, and amongst the confusion and bickering of the crowd, Paul cried out, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees, being judged because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead, and immediately more opposition surrounded Paul, and he had ignited a riot between the two sects of the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees believed in spirits and angels and of the resurrection. They yelled out, we find no evil in this man. What if an angel has spoken to him? In other words, we the Pharisees find nothing contrary to the law of Moses, no conduct in spreading the doctrine of the resurrection, which we do not approve. The doctrine of the resurrection was so closely held by the Pharisees that they put to the side other elements of Paul's beliefs like the resurrection of Christ himself, and fought to uphold this doctrine against the Sadducees. The Sadducees who denied the existence of angels and spirits and denied the idea that any type of resurrection began, they began to riot and began to fight with the Pharisees until the shouting now became violent. This will be the culmination in the height of opposition that Paul will witness in Jerusalem. He was facing an impending death, and we now have 70 men who are at odds with one another, and they are literally fighting in the square at this point. Tension couldn't be any more thick than what it is now. And my question to you is, what is your opposition this morning? What is that thing that is so big in your life this morning that it is causing confusion for you? that is at the center of your heart, separating you from the love and the kindness of God? What is it that's standing directly between you and your ability to connect more deeply? What in your life is a hindrance to you loving God in the way that he requires to be loved? Perhaps a deeper question is what do you need God's protection from? We will see in verse 10 that Paul will be protected by God and preserved for a greater purpose. His protection, however, came from an unlikely source, which turned the entire scene upside down. We have opposition, then we have protection. We have opposition, then we have protection. Let's look at verse 10. It says, when the dispute became violent, the commander feared that Paul might be torn apart by them, and ordered the troops to go down, take them away, 
and bring Paul back to the barracks. It's important to note that the commander had not originally had the best intentions for Paul surrounding his hearing. We see that although the commander in the beginning said, I just want the truth. I just want to understand why you are condemning Paul. It could have seemed honorable for the commander to send Paul back to the barracks. But make no mistake, it wasn't the commander seeking to protect Paul by ordering that he be taken away to the barracks. But the Holy Spirit moving in the midst of the chaos to preserve Paul, although death was near. And some of you here in this room this morning may not be facing death, but there are circumstances in your life right now where you need God and his infinite power and wisdom to speak a word to you this morning. It takes one word from God to dismantle your circumstance and make it work for your good. See, we serve a God who parts seas and aligns stars. We serve a God who breathes on dry bones and they become flesh. We serve a God who loves us so much that he would send his son to die a brutal death on the cross that we might live eternally, worshiping his name forever. Surely he can meet you right where you are and save you. Surely he's big enough to show up tangibly in your life and heal your situation. There is something about God's protection. Verse 11. In verse 11, we will see a prophetic fulfillment of God's purpose for Paul. A fulfillment of God's purpose for Paul. We have opposition, we have protection, we have purpose. Now, I know some of you are thinking, just like I was thinking, like, do we have to experience the opposition first? Like, wouldn't it be great if we didn't have to experience the opposition first? If we got right to, I'm protected, right to the purpose, right? Like, that would have been significantly easier. But the peril of the prophet is true. If you are going to do God's work and speak on God's behalf, you're going to have to endure just as he had endured. If you go back and look throughout Scripture and you find a prophet, I want you to take this same formula and just line it up against that prophet and say, did he have any type of opposition whatsoever? The answer would likely be yes. Did we see where God would intervene and begin to try to protect that particular prophet? The answer is likely going to be yes. But what was it all for? What does it all mean? Will God truly get glory out of this. Let's look at verse 11. It says, the following night the Lord stood by him, him being Paul, and said, have courage, for as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so it is necessary for you to testify in Rome. Now one could imagine the sheer joy that Paul must have felt when the Lord appeared and immediately encouraged him. It would have been a different story if it was an immediate rebuke, amen? But he showed up and said, I'm going to encourage you. He said, Paul, I want you to have courage. I've been watching you from heaven and what you have endured, and I'm rewarding you by personally giving you the object of your desire. I am calling you to bear witness to my name in Rome, just as you have done in Jerusalem. Paul had longed for years 
to minister in Rome. Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, verse 8. Romans chapter 1, verse 8. I had not realized the depth of Paul's desire to minister in Rome. I had not understood why, after an encouragement, God would say, your blessing would be that you would now minister in Rome. And it's so easy just to read over that part and say, okay, now you're going to go and do um, in Rome what you just did in Jerusalem. Good job, Paul. Let's keep reading. But it was much deeper than that for Paul. Verse 8 says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because the news of your faith is being reported in all the world. God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in telling the good news about his son. That I constantly mention you, always asking in my prayers that if it is somehow in God's will that I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I want very much to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, to be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Now, Paul gives a disclaimer. Now, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I had often planned to come to you, but was prevented until now. And that stuck out to me because how often do we want to land at the destination when perhaps we haven't done the preparation necessary when we arrive. How many times have you seen somebody called to a particular position or office where their character did not catch up to the, how fast they got promoted? There's something about the process, there's something about the opposition that is important for the destination. Paul says, I often plan to come to you, but was prevented until now. And in order that I might have a fruitful ministry among you, just as I have had among the rest of the Gentiles, I am obligated to both Greeks and barbarians, both to you, the wise and foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also in Rome. Now, we not only see God rewarded Paul by giving him the affections of his heart, the desires of his heart, we also see God's promises being Fulfilled. Acts chapter 9, verse 10. Acts chapter 9, verse 10. It'll be on the screen. I know I say, yeah, I'm flipping a lot more this morning, and you should. Mm-hmm. All right, so verse 10. It says, there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. Now, this is not the same Ananias that we read in, verse, in chapter 23. This is a different Ananias. This would have been a disciple of Jesus. We are looking now. In verse 10, different Ananias. He says, here I am, Lord, he replied. Verse 11, he says, get up and go to the street called Straight. The Lord said to him, to the house of Judas, and asked for a man from Tarsus named Saul, since he's praying there. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and placing his hands on him that he might regain his sight. So this picks up just as he would have been the blinded on the road to Damascus. And his eyes, I said, it just like scales were on his eyes. He just could not see what was happening. And the Lord spoke to him that a man named Ananias would come. And Ananias says, Lord, in verse, thir- verse 13, excuse me, I have heard from many people about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. 
Now, many of you know Paul did some pretty heinous things and oversaw some pretty heinous things in Jerusalem. And Ananias is like, that is not who I want to go and see at all, right? Like, I am not interested in going to lay hands on anybody who would murder Christians. Verse 14, and he has the authority here from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to Gentiles, to kings, and to Israelites. I will show him how much he must suffer in my name. Somebody say purpose. So we literally this morning in our huddles, in our small group time, we're having a conversation, and it was literally about how hard life can be. How hard and how difficult life can be and circumstances that would just come about and affect us in ways that we had no idea how we were going to get out. There was some type of opposition that we immediately feel. And I spoke to the young lady. I said, well, you know what? The hard part is, is that sometimes God calls people to long suffering. And we see that immediately when God, or when when Paul's conversion was taking place, that God's response when he sent Ananias to him was that he needs to know how much he needs to suffer for my namesake. Now, could you imagine that being your call when you say, I want to follow you, God. I want to follow you. And that's his response. Well, here it is. You're going to suffer for a very long time to make my name known. And I got unfortunate news for you. That is your call. Amen. <laughs> Amen. We're to bear the burdens of our brother, number one, right? But we also are to endure suffering just as Christ has also endured. So we see Paul's purpose has been established before the foundation of the world and spoken by the Lord upon his conversion. God called and purposed Paul to be his chosen instrument to take his name to the Gentile, to kings, and to Israelites. We see God's purpose being fulfilled as he preached constantly to the Gentiles through his faithfulness in Jerusalem. And now he is finally being sent to Rome where he will preach to kings. Just like Paul's purpose was established, so was yours. So was yours. And I'm often amazed that when we talk to other believers and we ask the simple question, what do you believe your purpose is? How many Christians immediately become frazzled? When you push just past the Christian politeness, And you ask the deeper questions, why are you here? Why in this moment in time, in this moment in history, would God fashion and create you for this particular moment? There are typically blank stares. There's typically, I don't know necessarily how to answer that. There's this assurance that's lacking in our responses Close your eyes just for a moment. Close your eyes just for a moment. And I'm going to pray for you before I end our time. Father, in the name of Jesus, my prayer this morning 
is that we understand as clearly as we understand anything else that opposition will be present as we follow you. Your word declares in John 16, that in this world we will have trouble. That is a promise. But we are to take heart for you have overcome the world. Father, we repent now, Father, for not being bold and courageous just as Paul has been, Father. We repent now that our communities aren't different, that things have not changed around us, Father, because of our lack of boldness, Father. We repent of that now. But, Father, we call on you right now, Father, to work in our life, to work on our behalf, Father, to make your name great in our community. You can open your eyes. Christian, he who has began a good work in you is faithful and just to complete it. Eyes have not seen nor have ears heard or even entered the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him.